We have been on a journey this year. Uh, that's one of our themes here is join the journey at Hendersonville. And, and our theme this year has been discovering the mission of God. And we began back in January with looking at the mission of God as it came into existence through Israel, as Israel became the people that would bring Jesus, the second part of our theme, as we looked at what Jesus did as he came into the world as God incarnate to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we spent the last two or three months looking at the gospel. And I thought that was a very important topic for us to really understand. What is the gospel? What is our response to the gospel? And what is the blessings and benefits of the gospel? And of course, the gospel in one word is Jesus. He crucified, buried, raised, right hand of God, establishing his kingdom. All of that is involved in the good news that he brought into the world. But then number two, what is our response? Both Paul and Peter talk about obeying the gospel. In other words, there's something about the gospel that causes us to have to make a decision, either to believe it or to reject it. And then for four weeks, we've been looking at the blessings of the gospel. Began with forgiveness, talked about the Holy Spirit, moved over to what it means to be a child of God, an heir uh, of God, an heir with Christ. And then last week, what's the eternal home of the believer? And, and of course, I presented some views that are somewhat different. People tend to believe either you're going to spend eternity in heaven or some of us believe that you're going to spend eternity with God in new heavens and a new earth. And I presented why I believe the latter. As I mentioned last week, my dad never heard that. And, and my dad is with God right now, a faithful believer in him. You don't have to know everything about the future to experience the future. I promise you that because none of us do. And today we move into the fourth topic, which is going to carry us all the way through November. And that's the topic of discipleship. Now, I appreciated Jeff's reading of Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20 a few moments ago. Because it really does lead into what we're going to be talking about. Now, if you were raised in the faith family of churches of Christ, like I was. I mean, I, I, I was carried to church by the time, you know, I was seven, eight, nine days old. I was at church and, and attended church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know, vacation Bible school, gospel meetings, and as I say, uh, also clean up day at the building. I mean, we were always there. I mean, if the doors were open, we were there. And, and one of the things that we were taught about the gospel was this model you see up on the screen. Now, it had various shapes and forms. Sometimes there were staircases you know, sometimes there were numbers, one, two, three, four, five. But it was basically, the gospel is about hearing who Jesus was, believing it, repenting of your sins, confession, and being baptized. And then we would tack on the end of that, because there was a five-finger exercise. You had one too many. We would tack on the end kind of what happens after you're baptized, which is be faithful to the Lord till death. Now, here's the problem with that. We would do a lot of teaching about how you come into a relationship with God. But then we would almost, once you came up out of the water, just send, send you kind of away with this nebulous, be faithful unto death. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be faithful to death? Because if you're not careful, what we ended up doing was preaching what's called a transactional gospel. The transactional gospel has been a part of the American evangelical culture now for over a hundred years. 
I mean, it was basically what you want to do is get people saved. I mean, that's the goal of everything as a Christian. you got to save people, save people, save people. Now, I hope you understand, I'm not against saving people. But what are you saving them to? I mean, is salvation kind of like insurance? Do you go, you meet the requirements, you get it, and once you have it, you've got it, and you go on living your life like you want to live it. Is that what salvation is? Because when you turn to Scripture, that's not what I find there. And yet I'm afraid that for many of us, we kind of ended with be baptized, and that was the pinnacle of our walk with God, and everything else just kind of like was, well, be faithful unto death. I want to suggest to you we need to get away from a transactional gospel. Transactional, by the way, just means you pay for it, you get it. I mean, it's kind of the American way of life. And I'm convinced that that's not the way we relate with God. Jeff mentioned Matthew chapter, and and I want to raise the question, what does the Bible say about it? Matthew chapter 28. We, We looked at these texts when we were going through what is our response to the gospel? You know, Matthew focuses on baptism. Mark focuses on faith. Luke focuses on repentance. Fascinating how different ones of the writers of the gospel focus on different aspects of our response. All of them are included, but they focus on different ones. For Matthew, it was baptism. Therefore, go and make, notice the word there, disciples, apprentices, followers, students. I mean, whatever word you want to plug in there, that's what that word disciple means. Of all nations, and of course the way you do that is baptizing them, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And our problem was, that's kind of where we ended the text. And the reality is, that's not where you end, that's where you begin. I mean, that's where it, the whole journey starts. And so what does it mean to be a disciple? Yes, baptism begins that journey, but what does it mean to be one? And if you look at what Matthew says in verse 20, that's where it gets daunting. Teaching them to obey everything. Jesus is speaking that I've commanded you. Now, if you were to just pause for a moment and go, okay... In Matthew, in his gospel, when Jesus says, I want you to obey everything I've commanded you, what is, what is Matthew pointing back to? And I want to suggest to you that he's pointing back to all the teachings of Jesus that he has revealed in this gospel. I mean, if you look in Matthew, there's five huge blocks of teaching material in which Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him, what it means to live in the kingdom, how to relate one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and even what's coming in the future. In particular, I would call your attention to the opening part, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you want to know what we obey? Just kind of spend a few minutes in those three chapters. I mean, they begin after the Beatitudes with, listen, you need to understand who you are. You're the salt of the earth. You're that which preserves things. You're the light of the world. I love this image. Both of those images there together. You're salt and you're light in the world. You need to take your walk seriously. He then begins to talk about how that our righteousness, our way of doing what's right, 
He says, you've got to approach that different than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, we, we don't live in the first century. We're not aware of the hypocrisy, you know, as well that's there. But it's simply Jesus' way of saying you've got to do more than surface obedience. And so he goes into the rest of chapter 5 by saying, you've heard it said this, but let me tell you what you need to do. For instance, you've heard it said don't murder. You need to do more than that. In fact, let me tell you, you don't even need to be angry. Seeing some wives elbow their husbands. Some of y'all violated this one this morning, didn't you? Come to church. You're like, you've got to be kidding me. And of course, you, you can look at that, and, and by the way, you could put my face right there because I've been guilty of this far more than I want to admit. And you may be thinking, you know, Les, that, that's, not, that's not what Jesus is talking about. But you know, it's not that per se. It's where that leads to. You see, the problem with that is it leads to this. That's two weeks ago. That's Houston, Texas. We don't call it road anger. We call it road rage. Why? Because you don't know who you're going to get into a problem with on the highway, and if you pull over, they're going to get out of a car with a pistol and start shooting at you. That lady is shooting at the car in the distance. One bullet went right past the guy's head. He had to go to the hospital. I mean, it didn't kill him, but it literally nicked his head. You know what she was shooting at. The other bullet went into the car dealership that you see in the background. I mean, all because someone driving next to you didn't drive the way you thought they ought to drive. You see why Jesus said it all starts with anger? Or Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. No. You can't hate your enemy. You've got to learn how to love him. One of the most difficult texts in all the Bible. I mean, I don't know how many times we try to get around this one. I still remember teenager in high school, youth devotional, one, one Sunday night after church, I said, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? And one of my distant cousins, I later found out, he was the first one to speak. He said, if somebody slaps you, you turn and let them slap the other. And I was so proud of him. And then he said, and then you deck him. <laughs> I'm serious. Serious as a heart attack. I mean, that's what his dad had taught him. Yes, son, you've got to turn the other cheek, and then you lay him out. And that's just kind of the way our minds work. And Jesus says, no, that's not what you do. It's not what you do at all. He goes on in chapter 6, and he says, listen, if you're going to be serious about following me, you've got to look at your prayer life, you've got to look at your fasting. Boy, that one blows us away, don't it? We're supposed to be fasting? Go back and study the Sermon on the Mount. Giving? All of these issues fall into place. And, and then he comes right out of the giving, and he says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's a, that's, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because that's what we want to do. That's the American dream. I mean, I want you to think about last week. Lottery in the, company, in, in the country. $1.3 billion lottery. Now, 
and some of us bought tickets. Because we're convinced if I won that, I could do a lot of good with it. And I've had to remind Les Chapman that one of the reasons God may not have blessed Les Chapman with more wealth than he has is because Les Chapman may not be using what he's got already to the glory of God. Do you think God's incapable of giving you what he thinks you deserve? Now, I, I know that we run through difficult times in our lives financially. I'm not saying that God controls every aspect. I get that. I mean, God is in control, but God's not, you know, manipulating every person's paycheck. That's not the God that we serve. But what God is saying is, where is your focus in life? He goes on and he says, by the way, what if you're on the other end? What if you worry about what you're going to put on the table tomorrow? By the way, anybody been to the grocery store lately? What happened? I mean, June does most of the shopping. She messed up last night and said, you want to go to the store with me? I said, sure. She said, I've just got a few items to get. And when she said few, she meant just a few. And so we go up, we start checking out, we fill up, I don't know, maybe five or six of those little plastic bags, you know. And it comes up on the, on the screen, $105. And I look at that and I said, hon, look at that. And she says, yeah, but you have coupons. I don't have that many coupons. Goodness. And for a lot of people... Their choices is food or medicine, food or rent, food or, by the way, has your electric bill come in lately? Have you noticed that one? You see, for those who may not be worried about laying up treasures because they don't have any laid up, they may be worried about how do I just pay my bills for tomorrow. And God says, I've got an answer for that as well. You get to the end, and Jesus basically said, you've got two choices. You can listen to what I say and obey it, and you're like a guy who builds this house on a rock, or you can ignore it, and you're like the guy who builds this house on the sand. And if these two houses are up for sale, which one would you buy? And, of course, that's the challenge that God's giving to us. Now, Paul's going to come at this a little bit different direction. Paul's going to talk about what it is that these obedience to these commandments is leading to. This is from the NIRV, which is the New International Reader's Version. But I think it really does a good job in summarizing verse 29 of Acts 8 when he says, listen, let me tell you what God has always planned for us, for you and for me as well. God planned that those who he had chosen would become like his son. John Micah used the word image bearers. We're God's image bearers. We're Christ's image bearers into the world in other words the ultimate goal for Les Chapman was when he became a child of God was over time for him to be transformed from Les Chapman into the image of Jesus Christ and, and I know some of you are thinking boy you still got a long way to go don't you yes I do I do but one of the things you see Paul driving at as he talks about this, you turn over to 2 Corinthians, he says, and we all, everybody who's a follower of Jesus, are being transformed into his image. Now, we may have the break zone, we may be putting up obstacles, we may be grieving the work of the Spirit, we may be doing all kinds of things to slow that process down. But what God has want is his image to be ever 
present in increasing glory through the power of Jesus and the work of His Spirit. In other words, what God wants is every morning when we look in the mirror, you know, to say maybe a little bit more of Jesus is staring back at us. That's what He wants. Now, a lot of us would look at that and go, sign me up. Sign me up. That sounds great. I mean, I, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like God. I, I, I want to learn how to obey His commandments. Sign me up. The only problem with sign me up is you need to know what you're getting into. I'm reminded, uh, Rodney, of my, old, my youngest son, Kyle. Kyle was a senior at Lipscomb several years ago. And he's a bus- he was a business major, okay? And uh, as he is signing up, I would always ask him when he had signed up, whose Bible class did you get? And he would always tell me, and i say, oh, okay, that'd be good. You'll learn a lot from them. And, and so here he is. He's in his last year. He, he signs up, and he, he comes home, and I say, son, who'd you get for Bible this time? And he said, well, Dad, I signed up for one particular class and a lot of my friends, but it got filled up, and so they bumped me to a different class. And, of course, being a business major, you have to line up your business classes first, and then you plug in whatever Bible class you you can get. And I said, okay, well, who did you get? And he said, well, I got some guy, uh, and my brain just went dead. Okay, I just got it. Sometimes my brain goes dead, and I go, wait a minute. He said, I got some guy by the name of Harvey Floyd. It was Harvey's last semester, Rodney. And he, I said, you got who? He said, Harvey Floyd. He says, a class on Romans? Now, for those of us who are Bible majors, you know, having Rodney for Hebrew or, or Harvey for, for Romans, is just, you know, it's like, wow, it's the best of the best. You know, man, that's what you want to have. And yet for my son, he didn't know who he was or what he was getting into. You know, it's like, sign me up. And I'm like, you got signed up all right. <laughs> You know, now I can faithfully say he made an A in the class. I am so proud of him, you know. But we say sign me up and we're not quite sure what we're signing up for. Let me show you what we're signing up for. Peter would put it this way. He says you need to be awake. You need to be sober-minded. Because your enemy, the devil. Wait, wait a minute, Peter, what did you just say? Your enemy, the devil. I don't have any enemies. Oh, yes, you do. When you come up out of that water, you've got a new enemy. And your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's what's going on. And and you look at that language and you go, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. Yes, you did. You may have not realized it, but you did. In fact, Jesus, when he was standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says, so you're a king. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent me uh, from my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And of course, you look at that and you say, that's right, because you see, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus didn't come to make war. He came to bring peace. Uh, you probably need to step back and realize there's a peace that you bring in the midst of war. Because one of the things that if you'll just step back for a moment and begin to look, you find a lot of language we're not usually familiar with. 
1 John 3, 8, where you have John, who, of course, wrote his gospel, now describing why Jesus did come into the world. Notice the yellow. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And, of course, when you think about that, he came to do what? To destroy the devil's work. And so while Jesus is trying to destroy the devil's work, the devil is trying to destroy Jesus' work. Which is why when you turn over to the book of Revelation, after describing what Jesus, how he had come into the world, I mean, you get this language that's really weird. I mean, you step back and you go, no, no, no. Then war broke out in heaven. War doesn't break out in heaven. God is in heaven. God is in control. I mean, John, what are you talking about? John's just simply sharing a vision. But war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fights against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fight back. And you're starting to get this glimpse into the spiritual realm that we live in today. He goes on, and he was not. The dragon wasn't strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. And then to make sure we get it, that ancient servant called the devil or Satan. Both devil and Satan simply means the accuser. And he's thrown down, and he's the one that leads the whole world astray. But woe to the earth. Words to us. Woe to the earth and the sea. Why? Because the devil has gone down to you, and he's filled with fury. Because he knows that his time is short. You ever watch stories where some guy barricades himself in a house and he begins to shoot as police officers show up and he basically has one philosophy, I'm going to take out as many of them as I can before they take out me? That's what you see here. That's where that, that kind of spirit comes from. But that cause, that's who the accuser is. He's someone who's bound and determined to destroy as much as Christ's work as Christ is destroying him. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. The woman here is Israel. Basically how John's version in the revelation of the birth of Jesus, the woman is Israel, Jesus is born, Jesus is swept up to heaven, enthroned at God. And so notice, he was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. You want to guess who her offspring is? You. Me. He tells us, look at it. Those who keep God's commands, Matthew 28, 20, and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. I, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, you did. We're in an all-out war. Yesterday was the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. It eventually brought about the end of World War II. If you know anything about your history, you know that there were three axes of evil in World War II. You had the Germans, you had the Italians, and you had the Japanese. And because of that, the United States was fighting on two fronts, in the Pacific and over in the East in Europe. But at the same time, spiritually, we face an axis of evil as well. Three great enemies. The first is the devil, the Satan. Again, Satan is not his name. It's simply a name that describes what he does. He's the accuser. He's the one who is literally leading the rebellion against God. And then the second axis of evil that we face is the only own inner part of us called the flesh. And all of us know this. 
Paul would describe it over in Romans 7 this way. He says, so I find this law at work. He's talking about inside himself. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war. There it is. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. In other words, what's Paul saying? What all of us have experienced. A part of us that says, here's what God wants me to do. And a part of us that says, here's what I, the fleshly side, wants to do. And they wage war. And we choose. You know, the old image of the little angel on this side of the shoulder and the little devil on that side. And both are whispering in our ear, here's what you need to do. And we get to make the violent vote. And Paul says, we've got to find a better way of doing that. Because unfortunately, when we choose, we tend to go more with the little devil than we do with the angel. And he goes on to describe what that war is like. In fact, he'll use the language as he gets into the end of the chapter. Oh, wretched, wretched man that I am. And all of us have been there. We felt it. We know it. It's real. And then the third one is the world. And brothers and sisters, this is where we've got to get serious. I appreciate so much the work of John Mark Comer. He's, he's written a book called Live No Lies. And, and a lot of where I'm going over the next four months kind of originated from some of his early thoughts. Uh, back last year as I was planning this series, I called several preachers up. and I said, here's what I'm wanting to preach. Can you recommend any books? And this is one of the books that was recommended, Live No Lies. But Comer talks about the fact that we live in a different America today. I mean, it's not the America a lot of us were raised in. He says, number one, we're moving from a majority to a minority. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and, and believe in the Bible. We're finding ourselves more and more, not as the majority of those in America, but a minority and a very quickly shrinking minority. Anybody who studied those 35 and below knows that the number one group that's growing the fastest is called the nuns. And that's not N-U-N-S, it's N-O-N-E-S. In other words, what are you religiously? I'm nothing. And so we're moving quickly from a majority to a minority. We're moving from a place of honor to a place of shame. There was a time that if you were a Christian, if you came from a Christian college, if you were a part of a local church, you had a place of honor. I mean, people looked up to you. More and more now, the world's saying, no, it's their fault. It's their fault. They're the ones who's infringing on your rights. They're the ones trying to tell you you can't do what you want to do. They're the ones that's trying to put all these rules and regulations on you. And now we're becoming the ones who are being shamed. And if you haven't seen it, just get ready. You will. And then number three, we're going from widespread tolerance to a rising hostility. I mean, can we be honest? I don't remember as a kid ever hearing of somebody walking into a church and shooting a church up. And now, I mean, we can actually point to illustrations, and I know someone who had his finger shot off during a church service. Why? Because the world's becoming more and more hostile toward us. Brethren, we're in a war. Sign me up. You better be aware of what you signed up for. Look at what Paul says. 
Well, let's start with Revelation. This is one of those passages that a lot of us, because we don't study Revelation, we just skip over. I saw heaven standing open. This is another vision of John. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. Who in the world is this? Must be somebody bad. No, no, it's not because he does it with justice. Well, I mean, who is this leading this army and waging war? Well, look at what the text says. His eyes are like blazing fire. His head has many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name, John, is the Word of God. And if you know anything about John's gospel, that phrase, Word of God, takes you right back to John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so Jesus himself is depicted here as waging war. But he's not just waging war, but the armies of heaven are following him. Now you may be thinking, okay, these must be the angels up there that serve Jesus. No, no, no. The armies of heaven are those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's us. Look at the language. He says, they were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And who are these? They're the ones who are part of the wedding feast. They're the bride of Christ. They're the ones that, notice the last line, who wear fine linens that stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And so Paul will say this. He'll say, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war. Now, if he stopped right there, it'd be good, but that's not where he stops. He says, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm fixing to say. But at the same time, hear what I'm fixing to say. I was watching a lady after a political rally, and she said, we people here in the South believe in three things. We believe in Jesus, we believe in guns, and we believe in, and she mentioned a politician. And then she said, and not necessarily always in that order. Now, if you're a gun collector, God bless you. But if you think by putting guns in your house and enough ammunition that you can take on the Russian army is going to solve the world's problems, you don't understand what spiritual warfare is all about, brothers and sisters. I'm just going to tell you point blank. If you think that's what's going to stop evil, you're on the wrong battlefield. And that's what Paul is trying to get across here. He says, listen, we fight a very different fight. On the contrary, the weapons we use, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds where? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every cap. Uh, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Brothers and sisters, where we're losing at in the world, in America today, is not at the ballot box. Where we're losing at is the thoughts and ideas of the American people. We have got to get serious about how we present Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And it's Jesus presented in a way that causes people to stop in their tracks and say, that's a better approach to life, and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to fight in his army, his way, in his war. And you've got to make up your mind which direction you're going in. But this war is ongoing. It's been ongoing ever since uh, Adam and Eve entered into the world. And it's why that, that, that Paul says you better put on the whole full armor of God why? 
Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against Republicans. It's not against Democrats. It's not against communists. Let me tell you, it is against rulers, authorities, and powers in this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. It's a battle being fought up there and right here. And if we're not preparing for it, we're going to be casualties of it. It is that simple. Following Jesus is about being in the Lord's army. We sing it in VBS. We need to practice it as adults. 1 Samuel 17, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. David goes up against Goliath. Now, he's in a literal war. I mean, it's the Israelites against the Philistines. But, I mean, you look at Goliath. Goliath, you know, nine, ten foot tall. He's got sword. He's got javelin. He's got armor. I mean, he is just a monster of a human being. And then you got young David here, a teenager, who goes out against him, and he's going to pick up a rock and a slingshot. And, of course, you're looking at the odds, and you're going, I tell you what, if there was a lottery on this one, I'm going with Goliath. But when David comes out, he says, You come out against me with the sword and spear and javelin? But notice, David doesn't mention his sling. Because David knows that it is not the rock in the sling that's going to take life down. It's the God that he serves that's going to guide that rock. And so look at what he says. But I come out against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Why? For the battle belongs to the Lord. Are you ready to fight? If you've not signed up for the army, maybe today it's time to sign up for the army. Because let me tell you, we're in a war. A war for our very souls. And it's time we know our enemy. It's time we know his strategy. And it's time to know how to respond to it properly. And so if you need to sign up, today's the day to sign up. In faith and in baptism, we would love and be honored to help you. Why? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. Come right now as we stand and sing.